Welcome to The Impact Project, the best podcast for young millennials to learn about and get involved in the business of sustainability, impact investing, and all things for purpose. My name is Ray, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Lucy. Lucy, how are you? I'm good. This week, we're talking to Stephen Pitnitzer. He's the Head of Renewable Energy at Federation Asset Management. And in this episode, we had the chance to sit down with them and discuss the state of renewable energy, what the future looks like, and the role that Federation Asset Management is playing in driving forward a clean energy future. Yeah. And I think for both Lucy and I, it was a really insightful episode, and we did learn a lot, um, especially about wind farms, spoiler alert. Um, and so we hope you enjoy the episode as much as we did, and let's dive right in. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Stephen. We're really glad to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, and it's just an amazing opportunity to get to sit down with you and to, I guess, hear about your perspectives, your experiences, and also to share them with our listeners as well. So hopefully they can get a lot out of it. So we always like to start our podcast with a little introduction to the guest um, and maybe hearing a little bit about your journey, any hobbies you have, but also how you got involved in the industry um, as well. Okay. Um, Hobbies is an interesting one. Uh, We will get to that. How did I get involved in the industry? Um, So I I started my career in more in conventional energy. Um, so it was around, it was what, the early 2000s around the time that, uh, sorry, early 90s around the time that um, the Victorian um, energy system was being privatised. Um, so that's really where it kicked off again. And at that time it was, you know, they were selling uh, Loyang A, Loyang B, distribution networks, gas pipelines. So I entered the industry through, through uh, in the conventional sense. Um, in 2000, I moved to Singapore and was 15 years in Singapore, covering markets from uh, from Saudi Arabia to, to China and everywhere in between. Um, so that was really a, a very broad approach. Again, again, looking more, mostly at um, you know, at conventional energy. Um, in what was it, 06, I joined uh, Macquarie um, uh, whilst I was there in Singapore and that role was really a principal investing role, again, focused on um, more conventional energy and infrastructure more broadly. Um, I came back to Australia in, what was that, twenty start of 2015, and just I came back into Australia when energy policy was very contested, where the, you know, uh, divisive, you know, polarised debate around it, uh, around renewables and the need for... Um, uh, adhering to uh, Paris commitments and the like, and that was quite um, uh, quite a shock for me. I'd been, you know, I'd really been away a long time and, and didn't realise how sort of frontline political um, this had, had, you know, this energy policy um, had become. Uh, and, and what what struck me was, you know, we we often talk about, you know, in markets, um, governments stepping in when there's market failure that might occur you know, in, in a particular market. And what occurred to me was this was government failure, right? This was government failure that the market had to step in and, uh, and deal with. So I became very interested in how um, I might get involved in that. Um, I became more and more interested in renewable energy, less and less in, in, interested in conventional energy. At about the same time, um, I got involved in a campaign um, to create a national park in a remote part of Western Australia and, and you know, had zero knowledge of, um, 
uh, botanical knowledge or environmental knowledge, but um, mm. but like this particular country in, in what's called the Great Western Woodland. Mm. Um, and so we got involved in, and ultimately um, the, the Helena and Aurora Range or Buck Goblin has been, um, it will become a national park. So mm. we, we managed to win that campaign. So I guess through that process became more and more focused upon how we do, we as business do what we need to do um, to decarbonise the economy. Um, I wanted to think more and more about how to do that, so I took a sabbatical for about six months and um, hung out in Italy in the mountains. Um, <laughs> things <laughs> <that> life. <laughs> um, yeah, goofing off, left the family behind. Um, you know, I was hiking and spending all that time thinking and, uh, and was approached through some contacts by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Mm. Um, so I decided, you know, cutting a long story short, I decided to uh, leave Macquarie, a wonderful organisation. They were very supportive of what I was doing. So I left Macquarie and became the Chief Investment Risk Officer at um, the CEFC. Uh, and that was just like an absolute immersion um, in, uh, in renewals um, and in, in the sort of entire effort in this country to, to de decarbonise the economy. Um, and through that process, I'm, you know, uh, at, at, at a core an optimist and, and, and uh, you know, a business person and, and um, you know, um, somebody who, who always wanted to create my own business. So it became natural that um, I teamed up with uh, three ex-colleagues from, uh, from Macquarie and other, and other organisations to create Federation Asset Management uh, for the purposes of, you know, investing directly into renewable energy. Uh, which is what I've done. So long-winded way of explaining how I got to be here, but uh, that is the truth. Um, hobbies is an interesting question. Um, I do woodwork. Um, I make oh. furniture and have done for many, many years. Uh, and I couldn't in Singapore because there are no, no facilities. <laughs> there are no trees, that's a good point. <laughs> no trees and no, you know, and no workshops. Um, so, you know, one of the first things I did on returning to Australia after 15 years is go back to my... Woodwork teacher who was already old, um, <laughs> and, uh, Richard Crosman School of Fine Woodwork, and um, uh, and re-enroll. Uh, oh. So uh, I, I continue with that. Right. Would, would we we ever be able to buy a piece of? Uh, uh, no, I don't. Do, I, I, don't <laughs> I, I don't do. I don't do commissions. Um, <laughs> some, some of my some of my colleagues there do. I, I don't do commissions because I want it to be absolutely perfect. And, and it's funny you say this. I had lunch today with. Um, uh, with a lady, a friend, Katerina Kamali, who um, uh, was a colleague at CFC, also very, very motivated and involved in, um, uh, in, in ESG courses. Um, and she did something for our business which, uh, which helped us a lot. And she did it just out of, you know, uh, out of um, it selflessly. Uh, so I made her a, um, a very traditional jewellery box and, uh, and gave that to her. So that's just... Yeah, unless you really help me out. <laughs> very, very exclusive. Yes. yes. Uh, and the other thing is uh, I'm never perfect doing woodwork, so, um, yeah, so, so uh, that's why I won't take commissions. Well, it's the imperfections that make it unique, right? Yes, yes, it is. Um, I have lots of those imperfections. <laughs> uh, and then if you see the... the you know, the, the, there are woodworkers and there are artists, mm -hmm. um, and in... In, in our class, we have some some true artists, and if you see the difference between somebody like me who has a technical capability and enjoys it, and a true artist at work, you just think, okay, I'll leave it to. The, the <laughs> <artist>. <laughs> 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 
Well, it was great to hear about um, about your journey and also about your woodwork passion. Um, didn't expect that. I have <laughs> neither of yeah. us expect. So yeah. Yeah, we would love to see um, some of your work if that's possible. I can do that. <laughs> um, I actually used to have a, a lovely piece here, but I, um, I took that home because it was too much crap on my desk and it was just oh, getting yeah. crowded. <laughs> yeah. Sure, you know what I mean, right? Well, we can always um, include it in our marketing materials. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. a good idea. Mm. Um, um, we're wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about your work right now with the Federation Asset Management. Of course, of course. So Federation was established to do three things and, and really three things only. Um, and that is to invest in renewable energy, so what we call sustainable infrastructure. And then we have what we call social uh, infrastructure, social real estate. So that is, um, there's two sides to that, providing childcare centres um, and uh, the other side is providing specialist disability housing. Um, so that's that's your, your your sustainable infrastructure, social infrastructure. In addition to that, there's a third limb which we call uh, private equity, which is really growth capital. So in that function, we invest in high growth companies um, that meet our societal need. So we are a responsible investor, an impact investor. Um, we are sort of a, a profit first uh, investor. We don't think that um, you know that there's a compromise between profit motive and and, and ESG. Um, so we, um, you know, we we pursue those um, those three limbs. Um, if you look at, uh, I'll talk a little bit about what, what I'm doing on the sustainable infrastructure side. But if you look at some of the growth capital uh, investments we've made, we've invested in companies like Sendel. Which you may have heard of. It's a. I've actually used it in their services. Yeah, okay, fantastic. I'll have to tell Chilmoney <laughs> that. Excellent. Big tick there. Um, so, zero carbon, um, you know, courier cup, virtual courier company um, run by a really clever guy, growing really well. So, that's one example. You know, another is George Health, which is a um, contract research organization for things such as, um, you know, researching new drugs and, uh, uh, and the like. Um, I mentioned the, the, the social infrastructure that's growing uh, very well. I can't remember how many childcare centres and disability homes we're up to, but, but, but growing very rapidly. Um, on the uh, sustainable infrastructure side, we have um, uh, acquired a business called uh, WindLab, which is Australia's leading wind developer right. uh, based in Canberra. Uh, that was a business that was created by um, by commercialising an arm of the CSIRO. So he had a bunch of scientists who originally started out by um, using modelling to to predict the behaviour of uh, a plume from from thermal generation. So you know how how did the, how did that plume behave in the atmosphere? And that was eventually adapted and developed to a a technology that can. Um, uh, forecast behaviour of wind over a given topography. So it's it's very useful not only for finding where the wind blows, there are probably quite a few technologies out there that can uh, survey for wind, uh, but this is a, a really quite a granular program that, uh, that models behaviour of cube of atmosphere over a topography. And that's very important for not only establishing wind resource but actually configuring a, a, an array, a, a wind um, array to, to optimise the energy yield from 
you know, from that with resource. Um, we saw that it's a company I've been following for a long time, but we saw it as a as a good company with a couple of challenges to it, and the, and the main challenge was access to capital. Mm-hmm. So they knew where the wind blew, they could you know they could put together wind farms. They'd have to go to somebody else to to yeah. raise the capital. Yeah. Um, we saw an opportunity to acquire the largest single shareholding that one of the founders wanted to leave, so we did that, um, and it became fairly clear to us quickly that. You know, it was too small to be listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. We felt that it would operate better privately. So we put together a consortium with um, Squadron Energy. That's Andrew Forrest's, um, oh, Andrew Forrest's um, private equity interests, right. sort of private energy interests. Um, and so together with Squadron Energy 7525, we privatised Winland. Right. Um, about, when, when was that? First of July last year. Mm, it's recent. Uh, so yes, it's very recent. So and the investment thesis there is simply getting the business to sort of take away the distractions of the public listing um, and 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 focus, refocusing them down on the Australian um, uh, wind market here and in the West, uh, and providing them the capital to actually build those wind farms. You know, as the projects come to fruition. So Wind Labs are a great company. It's got uh, a pipeline of wind developments. Uh, across the national electricity market, about four gigawatts, which mm-hmm. is a whole lot of wind. Um, and we are, you know, <clears throat> we're in the process of bringing those projects through to fruition. Um, the next one, the next cab off the rank will be a uh, 73 megawatt wind project in far north Queensland, near Cooktown. Mm. So about as far as you can go north in, uh, on the net. <laughs> uh, and it's not much further before, um, before you're in PNG. So... Um, that, uh, that will probably commence construction um, Q2 this year um, and be about 18 months to two years before it's uh, completed and brought online. Mm-hmm. And, and I assume a lot of these projects usually take at least around two, three years. Yes. To so to, to take a wind farm, uh, to take a project from a cow paddock to, to an operating, uh, sorry, a shovel-ready wind farm could be up to five years. Right. Uh, you know, it's a bit different from for solar, that's shorter term, but with wind you need to, you know, predict the resource, then you need to measure the resource, model the resource, then get your development approvals and, and so forth. So up to five years to get, to go from, hey, what about here, to, to it's ready to start digging the foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and WinLab has a pipeline of, you know, some 50 projects across Australia and uh, Southern Africa and East Africa. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the next one in Australia. That's already got um, power purchase agreements, so the energy's been, energy output's been sold. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're very keen to get that underway. Um, one of the reasons that we're confident in WinLab's technology and ability is that if you look at what's called the net capacity factor, i.e. the amount of energy as a as a percentage of the maximum theoretical output of a wind farm if it blew at eight metres per second 24-7 for 25 years, the net capacity factor is near 50%, it's like 48%. Now that's pretty unheard of other on for offshore wind. Um, right. And so it's a good measure of how efficient they are at finding the wind. And developing a wind farm and then configuring that wind farm such that it, uh, you know, that it optimizes the energy from that um, from that wind resource. It's, you you wouldn't think there were so many considerations just looking at the wind farms themselves from a third person perspective. 
So it's really interesting to hear that. Have you, uh, another thing we don't really realise uh, about the wind industry is uh, it's been around for a while, but th- th- there's a wonderful chart you can find on the internet which, which shows in scale the size of the original wind turbines compared to the wind turbines you see today. Right? Now, some of the tip heights on the latest generation um, onshore wind farms are like 230 metres high, so almost a quarter of a kilometre high. And if you compare that to the first uh, first wind turbines, they were toys compared to uh, it's, it's multiples right. um, in, in size. Now, you probably remember Pi R squared from, from high school, uh, yeah. and I can possibly remember that. Um, so as you increase that, that um, you know, that, that, that radius yeah. of, of turbine, you massively increase 3.14 times the uh, amount of energy that you can harvest from, oh, uh, from that wind. Right. As you go up and increase the, the fan size, yeah. uh, you have a very large increase in the amount of power. So the wind farms we're building today, if you drive past, uh, drive down to Canberra and go past Lake George, um, you see you know, many turbines. Now, I don't quite know how many, but I'd suggest more than 50. The wind farms we're seeing today are fewer turbines, much higher hub heights. Uh, and the other, the other factor with higher hub heights is the wind is not the same speed across the atmosphere. Ah, so yeah. if it's eight metres a second uh, at ground level, it may be, I'm making it up, but it may be 12 metres a second, that much height. So the higher you go, bigger the turbine and better quality wind resource, so less disruption uh, and, and better, better wind speeds, it all works for the uh, efficiency of it. Mm-hmm. So it's all about how much energy do you get from a dollar of capex. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you compare that to solar, you probably the best you get is probably 26 to 28 percent in a good in a good area for solar. Yeah. No. See, going off that point, I think an interesting discussion we wanted to have was taking a step back and um, getting your opinion on what are actually the renewable energy options that are out there right now, um, and how do they sort of stack up against each other from your experience? Um, okay. If, say, for example, we look at from Australia's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, Firmly held view at the moment is that for the next three to five years, the predominant technology for new build renewable in Australia will be wind. Why is this? Um, if you look at the, the national electricity markets, so start at Cooktown and end up at, I don't know, the bottom of Tasmania, that's very north south. It's like, I don't know, what's that, 4,000 kilometres, something like this, very north south. And so all of the solar generation is highly correlated. So if you think of the eastern and the westernmost points, it's only half an hour time difference in those points. So all of the solar electrons hit at exactly the same time, yeah, into the national electricity market. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so in addition to the fact that you're only getting 26% net capacity factors or 28% net capacity factors, it's all coming at the same time. So the dollar of a, of a marginal electron is not the same throughout 24 hours. It's like worth negative. Yeah, it, it may well have a negative price at noonday um, in, in, in the national electricity market and a different price in the evening. So when the uh, LRED scheme was introduced, there was a boom in renewables in Australia. Uh, I mentioned that wind takes about five years to develop. Solar takes a lot shorter. Why? Because we've got hundreds of years of solar data and just wrap. So um, a lot of the focus was on getting solar built. Personal opinion, we are built solar with the benefit of high time. Um, and, and if you think about if you think about the national electricity market as a highway, we're jamming all of these cars down that highway at noon, causing congestion, 
um, and that means system-wide losses from um, you know from you know, thermal losses or, or and the like um, has risen. So it's become this is the the, the issue that's happened with uh, solar is you you have you know um, deteriorating marginal loss factors as we call it or the the amount of um, system losses that are given solar farm wind farm needs to pick up um, is amplified because of this rush to build solar. The second thing that was done was everybody rushed to the best possible solar resource, mm-hmm. and that's out the back of nowhere. Yeah. yeah? Mm-hmm. And, and so <clears throat> now you've got your load here and you've got your generation out the back of nowhere, yeah. uh, you've got to bring those electrons further. So, you know, you, you, you've, you've got congestion, you've got greater distances between generation and load, system losses are greater. Those system losses need to be applied. So all of those factors and the fact that it's highly correlated means that the value of an additional utility-scale solar um, farm, in my view, is very limited. Uh, it's very limited because there's already so-called duck curve. So you have, uh, electricity in the middle of the day when all the solar is coming on is, is very limited. Now, that's one factor, but bear in mind that the rooftop solar continues unabated uh, in Australia and it's not going to get reversed. So that's just exacerbating the problem uh, because you have, you know, although that's behind the meter and it's not necessarily visible to, for want of a better word, to the national electricity market, it's displacing demand. So in the middle of the day, because of rooftop solar, your demand drops and you've got all of this utility scale solar coming in, you know, your supply increases, obviously you get very underpriced. So for these reasons, we believe that, um, that, that wind is going to be the perfect predominant technology, it is cheap uh, as well. Um, and the real advantage with wind is, in addition to higher capacity factors, it is not as correlated as, as solar. So in North Queensland, the wind's going to be blowing at a different time to New South Wales to, to somewhere else. And what WindLab has tried to do cleverly is, is to find, is to triangulate. So in finding a project rather than just on the best wind in Australia, we all know where that is. It's in the northwest of WA, with no people, so forget that. It's a combination of finding the best possible wind resource with the best possible uh, location uh, on the grid, with the shortest distance possible to connect that grid. So if you can if you can triangulate those three things, that's what defines a uh, a good quality wind project. Now, WindLab has also cleverly tried to find wind resource that is diurnally inversely correlated to solar. So if you think about it, you think about a solar generation curve, it looks a bit like a a normal distribution. What you try to do with wind is find the inverse of that. Right, so it flattened out. So it flattens it out. In fact, WindLab has the world's first um, combined wind-solar battery project at Kennedy Energy Park in in Huendon, again in Queensland. Uh, And that's the idea there that... You know, when the wind's blowing, there's the wind, um, and, there's salt, and that wind is very evening biased, and that's the most valuable time to generate. Um, you've got solar during the day, and then you've got batteries to try to fill in those sort of shoulder periods. Um, and that's, um, you know, we think in future that, you know, it, most, most developers are going to have some combination of wind and solar and, uh, and batteries. Um, now, what I've said about solar applies for three to five years. Why? Because once you get to the position where 
you know, joining batteries and, you know, you know, that generation of solar levelised cost of energy with the levelised cost of storage of batteries. If you're able to shift four to six hours of generation from the middle of the day to the evening shoulder, that's when it goes back to solar. And, yeah. And then, and then wind, wind will play, a, uh, we think, a, a less dominant role at that right. point. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it's, it's yeah. sort of what Tesla's trying to do at the moment, isn't it? With their, uh, I think they had a project out in South Australia with, with battery packs to store... Yes, so so there are uh, um, there are a couple of um, uh, well, the world's largest battery at, at, at the time was the world's largest batteries is the Tesla battery at Hornstar, uh, and so so yes, that is um, uh, that is a function or, or a, a capability of batteries, but to do that you need fairly long storage, and battery storage. Um, Cost more the longer that you want to, um, uh, you know, that you want to be able to load shift. So load shifting, as we see, is not quite economic at this stage. But as the price of batteries comes down, you know, that load shift application becomes more, more economic. Um, that said, there are lots of other applications for batteries. Um, you know, uh, so-called FCAS services, so frequency control and ancillary services. Um, the Hornsdale battery is so good at that, it's just basically eating the entire market for, um, for FCAT services. There are other markets coming uh, as well. So batteries are very good at, at uh, providing stability in the grid. So from that perspective, that would be more and more important. Um, and, of course, if you think about the duck curve and negative prices during the day, uh, what does that actually mean? It means you're paid. Someone will pay you to charge your battery. Uh, to, to absorb that excess yeah. uh, supply into the market. Uh, and so that in itself is, 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 is creating business opportunity, particularly for wind and batteries, right? because you, you, know, you use somebody else's solar and you get paid to charge your battery and then you use that battery to augment your wind, uh, your, your wind diode profile. So lots, lots, um, lots happening there. And um, we're really on the cusp of... Um, you know, of, of an acceleration of, of uh, renewable energy. If you look at the uh, the coal fleet in Australia, AEMO's published the uh, the regulator, uh, the um, market operators published forecasts of when the, um, the the coal fleet will shut. Uh, I think that they are way too conservative. Um, all they've done is they've looked at the engineering life of those projects and assumed that they are decommissioned at the end of the engineering life. The reality is. <clears throat> Because um, renewables don't have a fuel cost, they have a much lower um, um, sort of short, so-called short-run marginal cost. Mm. So those coal plants are losing money. Um, they, they can't, you can't just turn a coal plant off. You can run it down and run it up, which, you know, which does stress the equipment. But, um, so prices go negative in the middle of the day. It's not as though you can just switch off the power plant. You have to pay to be yeah. Um And so for that reason, I think the economic life is much shorter than the engineering life of that coal fleet. That's 27 gigawatts. Um, to replace 27 gigawatts of coal with renewable, you probably need double that or more. So we're talking, you know, 60 to 90 gigawatts of, um, of renewables being um, renewables and storage being introduced into the national electricity market in 20 years. So that's a real wow. opportunity. That's, yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. That's, that's $100 billion. <laughs> or, uh, or actually, it's much more than $100 billion. Wow. Um, the point I like to make to anybody who listen to me is that 
Australia in its history uh, has faced, every generation has faced much more enormous challenges than this. If you think about other generational challenges, conflict, famine, you know, disease, and governments and business have worked together to resolve those problems. Two great examples are Cochlear and CSL, right? Uh, great Australian companies, you know, some government heritage, CSIRO, um, solving this this problem, it's not a complete revolution. It's much more an evolution. We have the technology today. We know how to do it. It's just a matter of implementing it and and doing so in a, in a, in, a, in an efficient way. We're waiting for the costs to continue to come down. Um, but you know, and AMO's you know to its credit, it's doing a great job of planning how this will how this will roll out. Now, it's pretty easy to sit here and wave hands and say, and it's all going to happen. <laughs> Somebody's got to do this stuff. Um, yeah. um, but we know how to do it. We know what we need to do. We just mm. need to get on and do it. Right? And it's almost, you know, to back to my earlier point, it's uh, government failures to provide a policy framework. We're just getting on with it. Um, that's a little unfair because um, you've got state governments that are, you know, New South Wales, Queensland, are, that are very... Uh, supportive, have policies that are very supportive of, um, of renewable energy. I think, um, yeah, going back to um, Federation Asset Management and maybe the finance industry in general, um, mm. so how do you see finance and private equity play a role to drive forward this trend um, of the adoption of re- renewable energy in the next, say, 10 to 20 years? Um, yeah, so it, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a large task in an engineering sense and in a financing sense, uh, but it certainly can be achieved. Um, and, look, I think that the predominance of that is going to come from the private sector. Uh, I, look, I know that, you know, for example, Snowy 2 is coming and that's, and that, that's a government measure. Um, but all that all that governments really need to do is set down the rules and keep those rules uh, in place, and the capital will flow to deliver this. Um, so, you know, to give an example, New South Wales has created this system of renewable energy zones, and it's in the process of making rules about how the, the those renewable energy zones will be connected back into the grid. That's a great development. So that's going to mean uh, an investor could come along and say, okay, you want wind, you, you want renewables built in this area, you'll have, um, you know, you, you, we don't have all the details yet, but you'll have, you know, access to transmission to bring it into the grid. So with that framework um, in place, um, you know, there's plenty of capital, particularly infrastructure, and Australia's a sophisticated market and actually very good at infrastructure. Australia's a leading market in the world for infrastructure. My former employers, probably the the organisation that's had more influence on the development of the infrastructure than any other government or uh, corporation in the world. Um, so that you know that capability exists here. It's just you need you, know, you need a set of rules and you need confidence that you know when you know government changes hands, those rules are not going to go out the window. Because if I'm building a wind farm, I'm, I'm building it to recoup my capital. Um, you know, which let's face it, it's people's life savings I'm investing. I'm recouping that capital over 30 years. So I, I, I don't want a situation where three years in, 
you know, somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got a really good idea. Let's change all that and do this. So that's, you know, I, I guess I've got no, I'm, I'm here to facilitate, um, you know, private capital investment into renewable energy. And I've got no doubt that the capital is there, the motivation is there, the drive is there. You know, people are, you know, people are pushing in, um, investors, you know, superannuants, you know, there's a groundswell of support for uh, investment in renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that I need to be able to deploy that capital in a way that, um, that that's not, you know, not putting undue risk on those investments. Um, so, you know, clarity and stability in policy, that's all we need and we will get it done. That's the thing, right? <clears throat> I guess with government policy, it's always so hard to predict whenever a new government comes in, you just don't know. Yes, yes. Uh, look, I think, um, as I said at the outset of this interview, I was a, a, a little shocked and dismayed at how um, how politicised energy policy um, had become in Australia, and I think that did untold damage. Um, that said, um, I do see, um, you know, sense, you know, um, I do see both sides of um, politics wanting to move beyond this sort of <clears throat> making energy policy as an area of context. So starting with the Liberal Party, <clears throat> you'll note that there's not a lot of talk about coal uh, anymore. <laughs> maybe from the National Party, maybe from Martin uh, Joyce. <clears throat> um, and, and, and the focus is on gas. And then that's positive. Uh, sure, gas has a CO2 footprint, but it's a transitional fuel. Um, I have no issue in investing in a gas picker if it, if it allows me to build more renewables to provide the dispatchability to match it, because gas will replace coal and it will be, that will substantially reduce <coughs> CO2 foot, footprint in itself. And gas eventually gets replaced. It gets replaced either by uh, chemical storage batteries or mechanical storage, pumped hydro, or more importantly, it brings hydrogen through the system. And once we have hydrogen as a yeah. primary fuel source, then, then we can be completely decarbonised in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the energy market. Now, I want to make the point that that's only the start. You know, a lot of us think about, <clears throat> well, we decarbonise the, um, you know, the electricity system in Australia and, and we're done. No, we're not. Uh, transport is the other part to that, right? So and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but <coughs> I want to say about 17% CO2 emissions in Australia are from um, electricity generation, and I want to say about the same. Perhaps a little bit less comes from transport. So once we've decarbonised um, electricity generation, then you have a situation where an electric car is really not contributing to CO2 because uh, if you're charging your electric car with lignite, you know, Produced energy. That's yeah. you know, that. That's not great. Um, <clears throat> so so that occurs, and and then we go deeper into the transport sector. So the focus has been Elon Musk and his mm. his passenger vehicles. That's great. It's only a part of it. Personally, I think it's going to be Geely, the Chinese car makers, that are going to change the you know, the the predominance of transport to to um, you know, uh, to, to lithium ion batteries rather than sort of firms like, smaller firms like Tesla, um, smaller in terms of production uh, firms like Tesla. But then we need to tackle heavy transport. 
So batteries are not, in my view, batteries are not really a great application for heavy, <coughs> long distance heavy hauling. Yeah, so like planes, for example. Planes, trains, shipping. I mean, shipping's terribly polluting because it's using crap bunker fuel, yeah. uh, which is the like the worst of the worst. <laughs> in the, you know, in the uh, you know, in the in the, the column of um, uh, of hydrocarbons. <coughs> we need to change that to mm. to, to, to hydrogen. So this is a long process, um, and getting to, to net zero by 2050 is going to take more than just decarbonising uh, electricity, but we've got to start somewhere, and, uh, and we at Federation are taking on that first challenge. Taking the first step is always the hardest one, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, it's easy to take, it's, it's easy to do a misstep, but, you know, we need to drive change. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and the way we drive change is by investing and investing sensibly. Mm. Uh, you know, the lowest cost energy We'll talk about what in the low cost energy in Australia, the lowest cost energy is going to come from renewables. Mm. Mm. And I guess going off your point of from federation and investing, uh, we do understand that uh, you guys recently launched the, sorry if I get this name wrong, um, the Sustainable Australian Real Assets Trust. Have yeah, I got that you right? Call it Sarah. <laughs> um, do you want to talk us through a little bit sure. about what that's about yes. um, and what, what you're investing in? Yes. So, um, in December 2020, we signed uh, the first anchor investor in what's called, rightfully said, the Sustainable Australian uh, Real Assets Trust, or SARA. Um, that anchor investor was a group called Grover Capital Management out of the US. It's a very large uh, fund manager. It doesn't have a huge presence uh, in Australia. So we were delighted that they committed about 10% of the target size of the fund. To, to, to anchor that fund uh, and, and, and to back federation. Um, why is that? Um, Grover likes um, uh, infrastructure investment, particularly sustainable it's, uh, uh, infrastructure. Um, uh, it likes the Australian market, but Australia's, you know, when you live here, it doesn't seem so much, but Australia's a long, long way from anywhere and, and, and you know, a, a small market. And it's, it's hard from the US or from you know, a market like Europe just to come in here and, and start operating. So we were really pleased to, to partner with them to, to anchor SARA. So SARA will be a, a, a more or less traditional um, uh, infrastructure vehicle. We're aiming to raise $750 million uh, Australian dollars um, or, or we've agreed that the maximum we could raise is about a billion. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, what we call an evergreen fund, so an open-ended fund. Um, it's focused only on Australia uh, and only on sustainable infrastructure. So initially that will be generation. So all of those projects that are coming out of WinLab now will be developed um, or, or financed by Squadron Energy and SARA side by side, 7525. So <clears throat> that's, uh, that's the objective there. Um, we have a strong pipeline of, uh, of projects, not only in... in um, uh, in wind generation, but uh, you know, but there are also battery projects coming. Uh, you know, there may be opportunity to to acquire what we call behind the meter solar, meaning um, you know, solar that goes plugs directly into a factory or a facility. Um, and longer term, we're really interested then in uh, investing in that combination of energy intensive infrastructure uh, and the energy, you know, and the Ultra low cost energy. So, for example, the combination of digital infrastructure data centers, which are 
you know, let's face it, hugely energy consumptive uh, and, and super low cost energy like so. Uh, another very good example is desalination. Mm. Um, that requires outrageous amounts of energy. So, a combination of very cheap um, uh, sources of energy, very cheap and renewable sources of energy, uh, into that into that infrastructure. So, that's the the spectrum of what um, SARA seeks to invest in. That's that's a it's a very big spectrum. And it is. It is. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a broad uh, it's a broad canvas we can invest in. Um, we're seeking to make returns about twelve percent, mm-hmm. which is which is just quite high. Right? Yeah. It, is, it is high, mm-hmm. and, and and to make those returns, it's not about buying existing assets that are on the market. You won't make those sorts of returns there. So Sarah wants to develop new um, uh, infrastructure. So we're what we call a late stage developer. We're not running around cow paddocks trying to find <laughs> a solar farm or a wind farm, but we are sort of there with the capital when that comes to the point where well. It's a cow paddock, but we're, we're ready to start building something. That's what Zara will come in. Um, and so we're seeking and, and are confident um, that those returns uh, are available to us. Well, I think it's great just, you know, going back to the whole triple bottom line idea is that being able to make that kind of return but also contributing to something that's good for mm-hmm. the society and for the environment yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And, look, you know, when, when we started out, we did not actually tell people that we were a responsible investor or we had high ESG standards. Why? Because we thought people would think we didn't care about making money. Now, 10 years at Macquarie, I was an executive director there, I, I know about making money. It's very important. That profit motive brings a discipline to it. Um, but it's not mutually exclusive. And, and the way we do it is we have positive negative screens. So positive screen, I will invest in wind, solar, batteries, uh, hydrogen, Negative screen. I will not invest in, you know, uh, coal generation um, or, or or polluting. So there's there's no outright um, uh, prohibition on doing, <clears throat> you know, on uh, doing something that might produce CO two. In so long as, or for so long as, it in totality actually achieves the objective of increasing penetration of of, um, uh, of renewable energy into the grid and reducing the CO two emissions. So it comes back to that earlier example that I made. Uh, and if you think about pumped hydro, snowy hydro, for example, uh, okay, it's hydro, therefore it's pumped hydro, therefore it's, it's green. Yes and no. So if the water falls from the sky and it goes into the dam and it runs down a hill, that's green. If I'm pumping the water back up the hill using you know, uh, Victorian you know, brown coal-fired generation, that's not so great. Now, snowy hydro has done a lot to, to, to offset all that. So a lot of people as with renewable energy to, to address that situation. Um, but it was really important to us that we weren't dogmatic about it and say we'd never do anything that produce hydrocarbons um, because that can have, whilst it's a very simple message, it can have adverse effects. So, for example, there was a technology we were looking at that took uh, tyres, like um, used... You know, truck and car tyres, uh, and through a pyrolysis process broke that broke that down. And it produced three things. It produced recycled steel, yep. produced carbon black, and produced distillate, right, hydrocarbons. And so if I had an outright, you know, prohibition on doing hydrocarbons, that would mean I couldn't invest in something that was actually doing a really, really good job for the uh, circular economies, you know, complete recycling of tyres, which are a huge problem. Yeah. yeah. That's our approach.
I can hear crows, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it was really great to hear about sort of the, I guess, the investment thesis behind it, because oftentimes as an investor myself, it's thinking about, oh, how do I make a profit on this? Um, what are the financials looking like? But I guess understanding it also from the perspective of when you have an agenda and uh, sort of almost a mission to, to accomplish with the money you invest. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to see how that investment thesis slightly shifts to accommodate that. Yes. Uh, it, it, look, it, it does, and when when we first formed Federation Asset Management, I made it clear to my colleagues that I didn't think it made sense that I, on one side I would be doing renewable investment, um, yeah, investment in renewable energy and, and, and seeking high ESG outcomes, and then one of the other limbs was doing mm. black coal fired, <laughs> yeah, black coal deal. <laughs> Excited. And it took them about two minutes to get that and said, yeah, all well, fine, no problem. So that, that has meant there are going to be deals out there that we might have been able to make a lot of money on that we're not going to be able to do. Um, and, and that is fine. That is fine. I don't, you know, I don't want to work for a company that, you know, that hurts people or, you know, that involves modern-day slavery in its, um, in its supply chain. Um, I want to, you know... I want to demonstrate that business can do this um, and do this in a way which is um, which takes account not only of, of our own profit motive, um, but also takes account of making a difference in in our society, um, being a good place to work, um, and you know, and 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 you know, being safe in um, you know in the way that. Um, you know, and the, the way that the businesses that we own are run. You know, the first thing in any board meeting uh, on an investing company is WHSC. So what, you know, what lost time injuries have there been, what's been going on, mm -hmm. so, uh, as it should be. And our partner, in at least in WinLab, our partner, Squadron Energies, from a resources ba a background, they have very, very high standards uh, on that. Mm -hmm. Um, the other the other area that um, we've just begun to touch on um, is uh, is indigenous matters. Mm. Um, one of our one of our investors that that's backing us, who who's um, uh, you know, a, a philanthropic entity, doesn't doesn't wish to be named publicly, but um, they're very focused upon indigenous indigenous enablement. So what they're very keen for us to do is where there is. Um, you know, there are areas that we use for, for wind farms that host wind farms that are, that are Aboriginal land, and, and this is often the case, um, that they have an equity, uh, an equity interest in it, and, which we would do anyway, and, and, um, and also have, you know, uh, the opportunity for, for job creation, uh, which, uh, which is very important to us. Now, one of the points that um, while we're on this issue of job creation you know, if you go back to the last election where it, it, it said that the ALP fell down was that they didn't bring along the coal-producing areas they're worried about security and jobs, yeah. that's so frustrating. It's just so frustrating because if you look at the, the sort of capital we want to spend, you know, um, converting to sustainable or renewable energy, it, would, it, it, it has a massive effect on job creation mm. in the region. So where are these things? They're not built in Sydney and Melbourne. They're built, you know, out, out you know, in, in the region. Uh, and if you think about that $100 billion 
that needs to be spent over the next 20 years to, you know, to, to replace the coal fleet. That's a phenomenal job generator in the region. And that wasn't even a topic. It was all like, oh, no, you can't shut down the coal mines. Tell me some other industry out there that would go spending that sort of money in regions over the next 20 years. There are none. Not the resources sector. So, it's interesting how that's always used as a political tool to, yeah. against... Um, and it's really, really dumbed down debate, you know, that, that, you know, that polemic sort of discourse, you know, really dumbed down. It's like go to Hewenden where the Kennedy Energy Park is. You go down the pub and, okay, the Broncos posters everywhere. But I've got pictures of the whole wind farm there, the pro- process that went through. You don't find climate sceptics in, you know, where I grew up in outback Western Australia because they're feeling the effects of it. And people in communities where there are these renewable energy investments absolutely bloody love it because it's creating jobs. Exactly. Right. It's, it's a win-win situation. It is. We just need to get that through to, you know, <laughs> the, the sort of knucklehead wings of the one. <laughs> well, I'm, not sure. I'm not patient enough. <laughs> well, um, it's been... Absolutely amazing hearing everything from you today, Stephen. Um, I think just to maybe wrap up the um, the podcast today, um, our final question that we usually like to ask our guests is if you've got any favorite books or resources that you'd like to share with our audiences. Sure, sure. The first thing I'll say, which I really shouldn't, is I don't read business books. Like this, life's too short. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's not often we hear that. So. I, don't, I don't read like biographies. I just don't. Right. Um, the exception to that is Thinking Fast and Slow by um, Danny Kahneman, which was like an astonishing book, blew me away. Uh, absolutely loved that book. Um, I'm an avid reader of fiction. Um, yeah. Weirdly, I'm actually 1,200 pages into War and Peace at the moment. Um, War and Peace right now, I don't know, but um, what a phenomenal, uh, an absolutely phenomenal book. I've never really read Russian history, so what a phenomenal book that is and how pathetic and ridiculous those conflicts were the Napoleonic World when it it boiled down to it. So, um, look, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, contemporary literature, so um, love to read. Uh, Tim Whitten, Peter Carey, um, Lionel Shriver, um, Barbara Kingsolver, um, you know, um, Anthony Dewar. Uh, I'd probably read, I don't know, two books a month. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite a lot, 24 a year. Just, yeah, and actually probably, more, I wouldn't say more than that uh, because... Yeah, and people go, you've got four kids, building your own business. When do you have time to read? I make time to read because, yeah, particularly fiction, it takes you away. away. Mm. Yeah. Um, Big Marikami fan. I don't know if you guys have read 1Q84 or... Sounds familiar. Yeah, Marikami's like a rock star in in Japan. Um, So, you know, I'll point out, Jin, that um, a lot of ladies have told me only men like Marikami. (laughs) Who knew that? <laughs> Who knew that? I, 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 I love him. He, um, he wrote a book called, um, a non-fiction book uh, called What I Think About When I Think About Running. Um, and, um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, he's a marathon runner. 
um, failed businessman opened a jazz bar and became a writer and still do and does marathon running um, and, uh, uh, and that was uh, that was fascinating. He also wrote a non-fiction book um, about the one supreme truth cult, which is the cult of the sarin gas in the um, Tokyo subway. So. Um, Love to read. If you've got any, you guys got any recommendations for me, I'm always happy to read them. I'm not always, you know, uh, the exception is reading the classics, but uh, I've not read any Russian literature at all. So well, I thought I'd start with War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad one to start with. Right? Yeah. Um, but no, awesome. Well, well, thanks so much for your time. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, I think personally, uh, both of us got a lot out of this. Um, I think we, we're walking away knowing a lot more about wind farms now. <laughs> I can I can bore you about whatever you want to know about wind farms, and like if I only know the surface of it, but if you really want to go deep, we, we can get some engineers in here. Mm, that's what he's saying. He'll he'll take us through the whole thing. But uh, look, you guys are doing a great thing. This is really important. It's really important that you know the next generation and for people who are listening, you know, to, to take on challenges, to mm-hmm. understand that, you know, if you don't like what's going on, do something about it, right? Um, and that's why, you know, at, at, at age 50 I changed my career because this just became so much more important to me than trying to make a million dollars every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, third time of paying, third job of taking a pay cutting. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the fulfilment that comes the fulfillment is, is there. You guys are doing a great thing. Keep it up. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the episode as much as we did. While you're here, feel free to follow us on social media at our Instagram account, The Impact Project. The Impact Project podcast and the persons involved may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how they pertain to your individual situation.